Good morning. Welcome, New City Church. My name is Tim Briggs, and I'm the community groups pastor. It's good uh, to be with you here in this room. It's good to be with you via video in the cafe, as well as anyone who may be watching online. Hey, before we hop into our text, I thought I would take just a moment uh, to tell you a bit more about who I am. I've been married for 14 years to my wife, uh, Jenny, and if you've met Jenny, you know she is the better half in our relationship. And uh, we have three boys, ages 10, 7, and 5. And if that sounds rowdy, it's because it is. We have a rowdy home. There are lots of sports and forts and potty humor, and I have no clue where they get any of that stuff from, Uh, but it's a ton of fun. Uh, I really enjoy being a dad, and part of the joy of being a parent is witnessing your kids go through these milestone moments, these rites of passage uh, in their lives. And even if you're not a parent, uh, you can remember when you were a kid and you went through some of these things uh, yourself. Uh, We just had one of those milestone moments, those rites of passage. My oldest son uh, just turned 10, and so a few weeks ago I pulled him outside and I said, hey buddy, you're turning 10. This is a big deal, double digits, right? And so it's time for you to learn how to mow the lawn. Am I going to amen on that? Yeah. I was super excited about this. Uh, Him, not so much. But uh, he was a trooper. And so I gave him some lawn mowing 101. I gave him some philosophy of lawn mowing. I showed him how to do it. And then I let him go, right? And it was a sanctifying experience for me to watch my son mow the lawn because he's mowing the lawn kind of like this, right? Uh, I'm sure for you folks who, uh, who are parents of high schoolers, it's like 10 times worse when you're, you're training your kid how to drive. But sanctifying experience for me, uh, watching him mow the lawn, and I probably lost my patience one too many times. Uh, but at the end, he did great. He worked really hard, and we got all done, and we emptied uh, the dead uh, grass clippings. And I said, buddy, there's one more thing you have to do. Do you know what it is? And he said, no, I don't know what it is. And I said take a look at the grass. How does it look? And he says, well, it looks good. I said, yes. And you did that. Take a look and appreciate the good work that you have done. And I hope you know that feeling. It's the the joy that an artist has when she's painted the last part of her painting, and she takes a few steps back and enjoys fullness of her work. It's the grin that comes across your face when you've been laboring in Microsoft Excel for hours and you design that spreadsheet and all the formulas work the first time. And it's the joy, it's the delight a cook has when he or she has been working on a homemade apple pie, smelling in all those smells, and then it comes out of the oven and they cut that first piece and they savor that first bite. I hope you know that feeling because it's that feeling that we're going to chase over these next few minutes. And so if you have a Bible, open up to Mark 2, verses 23 and 28. Mark 2, 23 through 28. Uh, There's a Bible in front of you here in this room. If you're in the cafe, if you raise your hand, uh, someone will get one to you. And if you're watching online, uh, you have the internet at your disposal. So certainly you can find Mark 2, 23 through 28. Mark 2 says this. 
One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been going through the book of Acts uh, for a better part of the year. Uh, But we've paused and we've had three standalone uh, sermons this summer. And so when I was asked to preach, I was, I was given the freedom to choose what topic I could preach on, which for me was daunting. I'm sure some people would love that. Uh, it was hard for me to think, what am I going to preach on? And ultimately, I chose to preach on something that's not a hobby horse, something that I'm not that familiar with, something that would challenge me as well as everyone else. And so I am preaching uh, this morning out of weakness, not out of strength. And so hopefully there's something in this for all of us uh, to learn. And so I'm going to lay all my cards on the table here at the beginning. Uh, You're not supposed to do this. I'm breaking preaching protocol. I'm going to tell you my hopes uh, for this sermon this morning. Don't call the preaching police on me. Here is what I'm hoping. I want us to know what Sabbath rest is and it isn't. I want us to feel our need for it. And I want us to practice it well. So what it is and it isn't for us to feel our need for it and then to practice it well. Does that sound good? Okay. I see some folks have entered into Sabbath rest already. That's okay. That's okay. You guys are sharp. You're applying the sermon before we even get to the end. That's a good sign, I think. That's a good sign. Um, First, uh, to the passage in Mark 2 and some context in what's going on in this passage. To understand this passage, you have to understand that the law of God required a practicing Jew to rest one day out of seven. And so this would have started on Friday evening at sunset all the way through Saturday at sunset. And this, this was the law. However, the religious leaders of the day tacked on additional rules. In fact, there were 39 types of activities that you could not do on the Sabbath including reaping grain, which is what the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of doing. And for all you folks who like to count your steps, you'll appreciate this. On the Sabbath, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 paces. That's about 800 meters because that would be considered a journey and in breach of the Sabbath. And so there was the law of the Sabbath, but there was also these extra requirements added on. And what the Pharisees are doing in this passage is they're saying, uh, they're sounding that alarm. And they're saying, you have broken the law. Your disciples have broken the law. And Jesus fires back. And don't you love when Jesus fires back? He fires back, no, 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 no. We have not broken the law. We've only broken these made-up rules. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of David and how he was hungry and he ate the bread of the presence. And Jesus is seemingly affirming what David did. 
And as so often is the case, the Pharisees are missing it. And of course, they're missing Jesus along the way. So what are they, what are they missing? What is it about practicing Sabbath that they are not getting? And to answer that, we have to go back to the very beginning uh, in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we learn of a loving God who has created the whole world, not out of boredom, not out of loneliness, but out of the overflow of His goodness. And He's, and he's created man and woman in His image, and He has declared them very good. And then we read this in Genesis 2, 2 through 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work what, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what's happening here? Is God tuckered out? You think you've had a busy week, a productive week. Think about the week God just had, Right? If anyone deserved to plop down on the couch and veg out on Netflix, it was God, right? But that's not quite what's happening here. The word rested in the text is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's where we get the word Sabbath from. It means a deep rest and a deep peace. And it's a near synonym for the word Shalom. Shalom being a sense of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life. And so in this word, there's a sense of stopping and ceasing and completion, but also a sense of celebration. This is what we were talking about earlier with mowing the grass and Microsoft Excel spreadsheets and painting and cooking. God rested not because he was tired. He rested because he had a deep, peaceful satisfaction and appreciation of work well done. And this is what it means to rest. And this resting is woven in to the way that we are made to live. You don't have to turn there, but we see this spelled out in the Ten Commandments in Exodus. It says there, remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, we are to imitate God. We are made in the image of God, which means if God rested, so should we. So back to Mark 2. What, what were the Pharisees missing about the Sabbath? What did they miss? Remember what Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, we're not confined by the Sabbath. Rather, the Sabbath is a gift meant for our nourishment and our refreshment. So practicing Sabbath rest is not meant to be restrictive. It's meant to be freeing. Not a nuisance, but a gift. 
This is the purpose of Sabbath rest. So how do we get to a place where we can appreciate this purpose and practice it? Uh, To answer that, we need to understand the relationship between work and rest. Genesis 1.28 talks about this. God is saying to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the whole world. And this command is what's been known throughout history as the cultural mandate. And I love what theologian Richard Pratt says about the cultural mandate. Hear this. He says, The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. You see, work is a good gift from God. Work was a way to rule and to make something of the world, and it was designed for our flourishing and our enjoyment. Yet, we know the idea of toilsome labor, don't we? Sin entered the world in Genesis 3 and tainted everything, including work. And so here are some ways in which I think the fall has impacted the way that we do our work. Sometimes we see work as a mere necessity. There's no purpose to it. It's just a means to an end. Sometimes we see work as our identity. It's a way to prove ourselves, to prop ourselves up. Or perhaps you see work as a way to create social clout for yourself and reputation. Uh, Which reminds me of what Henry Nouwen said about the three lies that we are prone to believe about ourselves. That we are what we have, we are what we do, and we are what other people think of us. And you can see the way in which our work plays that self, plays that out, uh, those lies. And if we see work in one or more of those ways, then it will impact the way that we see rest. If work is a mere necessity, if there's no purpose to it, if it's a means to an end, then rest is the only way to detach from a purposeless life. If work is our identity, a way to prove ourselves and prop ourselves up, then rest is merely meant to recharge us so that we can be more efficient and keep climbing that ladder. If work is our identity, I'm sorry, if work is our way, a way to create social clout and reputation, then rest is just another way to further increase our social standing. And notice that these are our notions of work, not God's. These are our notions of work. They're our ways of controlling the nature of our work. And in doing so, we become a slave to our work and our rest. And it's interesting, in Deuteronomy 5, when the command to obey Sabbath is mentioned there, it's closely tied to the Israelites remembering how they were slaves. So practicing Sabbath rest for the Israelites was a way to break out of slavery and move into freedom. Yet our notions of work further enslave us. 
So regarding those statements I just read about work and rest, can you identify with any of those? We do live in South Charlotte, after all. We're, we're tempted daily with those lies. We're tempted to secularize our work and our rest. And this is what we lovingly refer to as the grind. And we glamorize the grind, don't we? Folks, we are people when asked, how are you doing? Respond by saying, I've just been really busy. I mean, think about that. How are you doing? I've just been really busy. Do you know how strange that is? That's super weird, folks. And we do it. It's what's known as the busy brag. Anyone here guilty of the busy brag? Oh, come on, folks. Come on. The cafe, at least they were honest. We're all busy. We're all busy. We're all, we're all guilty of the busy brag. And we respond this way because busyness and work is a status symbol. Uh, to admit you're busy is to say, I am important. But to not say you're busy is to risk your irrelevance. Hear me, the busy brag is no badge of honor. Embracing this mentality is toxic, it's grim, and it's dehumanizing. And just so I'm not misunderstood, I'm not talking about work ethic here. We should work hard. We should work as if we are working for the Lord. So this is not about work ethic. It's about work ethos. And this is why practicing Sabbath rest is so important. Practicing Sabbath rest is a way for us to wean ourselves off of those lies. And it's a way for us to sanctify our time. We are to work our tails off for the glory of God, knowing that our work matters. And then we're to take a breath, enjoy the work that we've done, and acknowledge how dependent we are upon God. It is a faith-building exercise. Speaking of which, apart from God, do you understand how crazy practicing Sabbath is? In a world that's consumed with efficiency, practicing Sabbath rest is utterly inefficient. And think how crazy it was to practice a literal 24-hour rest in an agrarian society as the Jews did, when so many other things were completely out of your control. Do you know how hard that would have been? And perhaps that's the point. Sabbath rest is a countercultural practice of us relinquishing control and trusting in the sovereignty of God. Uh, one of the things that will stick with me in, in preparing for this sermon was reading about how a modern-day Jewish family celebrates Sabbath. And I'm not necessarily uh, saying that we should all uh, practice Sabbath in the way that they do, uh, but as I read about it, uh, it was strange and it was foreign, but it was also attractive. Can you imagine what sort of witness we might have if we worked well and rested well for the glory of God? Can you imagine what our co-workers would think if we worked hard with integrity? Can you imagine what our friends would think if we rested as if we believed 
that there is a sovereign God. So yes, Sabbath is worship, and Sabbath is refreshment, but Sabbath is also mission. It's also mission. All this to say, work and rest are partners. They're not adversaries. They are partners. If we don't learn how to rest well, we'll never learn how to work well, and vice versa. So that's a lot of information. Uh, We might need some Sabbath rest to process that all. Uh, But let's get practical just for a moment. What does Sabbath rest look like? What does it look like practically in our lives? And to answer that, I'm going to share a story. There's a famous story of an archaeologist in a foreign land, and he wants to excavate this site, and so he hires a local indigenous tribe to help him. And so for days and days, he pushes this tribe, and they dig, and they dig, and they dig, and they move on to the next site, and they dig, and they dig, and they dig, and there's little sleep and little rest until one day, the tribe sits down. They're done. And as you might imagine, the archaeologist is upset. Hey guys, why, why are you sitting down on the job? We got lots of work to do. And the tribe leader responded by saying, we're waiting for our souls to catch up to our bodies. We're waiting for our souls to catch up to our bodies. Practicing Sabbath rest is a way for our souls to catch up to our bodies. We can say with confidence, we need intentional time of rest in our lives. I love what Pastor John Mark Comer says about this. He says, it's not that we have too many rules about the Sabbath. It's that we don't have any at all. The vast majority of us don't even practice Sabbath. We love our time off. We take a weekend, a holiday, a vacation. We love to play, and that's great. But very few of us actually practice Sabbath rest. So hear me, I'm not looking to create a burdensome list of do's and don'ts. The gospel is meant to be freeing, not restrictive. And I fully believe that entering into rest is more about a state of being rather than a list of doing. However, rhythms and habits are formational. They help us become the person that we need to be. And so with that in mind, I would offer this. Don't wait until you're exhausted to practice Sabbath rest. It's probably too late at that point. Be proactive, not reactive. Build intentional rhythms of rest into your schedule. And in regards to what you do with that time, ask yourself these rhetorical questions. Is this restful? Is this worshipful? Is this joyful? Is it restful, worshipful, and joyful? And if you can answer yes to that, then do those things on Sabbath rest. And if not, hold off. Hold off until a later time. Sabbath rest is not guilt-inducing. We need to be comfortable with the fact that sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is take a nap. Can I get an amen to that? Yes, yes, amen. So go forth and take a nap this afternoon. You have my permission. So why is rest 
so hard. It seems impossible to grasp sometimes, doesn't it? I know for some of you, rest is the most elusive thing in your life. Yes, we live in a fallen world, and yes, we have lies that we believe, uh, but perhaps there is more to the story going on here. And I think Hebrews helps tell that story. We don't have time to fully look at the text, but the author of the book at the end of chapter 3 and then into chapter 4 discusses how the Exodus generation failed to enter into the rest of God because of their disobedience. And the author is exhorting all believers now to be careful not to repeat the same mistake. So Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, it says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews 3 and 4 helps us to understand that the present rest that we are called to is a foretaste of our future eternal rest. And this, of course, is the rest that the gospel and only the gospel can provide. Our default orientation is to grind and to strive and to earn. And this is the inner work that lies beyond our outer work. This is the work of self-justification. We so desperately want to save ourselves. Yet, the gospel message says, rest. Rest. The core message of the gospel is done, not do. Done. I love how one pastor puts it. He says, At the end of his great act of creation, the Lord said, It is finished, and he could rest. On the cross, at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus said, It is finished, and we can rest. We can rest. So back to our initial passage in Mark 2. Jesus closed his rebuke by saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what's he saying here? He's saying that he is the source of peace, flourishing, rest, and delight that we are so frantically searching for. After all, it was this same Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Hear that again. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Ask yourself, if your burden isn't light, whose burden are you carrying? I know there are folks here who are beaten down, who are hurt, who are struggling, who are weary. And if that's you, hear this good news. 
There's a rest in the gospel that is sweet and enduring and fulfilling. And it's only through this eternal rest that we can taste rest here and now. Jesus is calling us to enter into that rest. And the good news is it's never too late to enter. The offer remains open and extended. So let's enter with joy, shall we? Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess we often trust in our own work. We strive to earn, we labor to justify ourselves. And Lord, we repent of our misguided ways, the ways in which we mean to reconcile ourselves. Remind us of the good news of the gospel, the good news that says done, not do, the good news that says rest. Remind us of your invitation, Jesus, of that very thing, eternal rest, your invitation of an easy yoke, your imitation of a light burden. I pray we would trust in the promise of that invitation. Lord, help us develop rhythms of rest in our lives in response to the rest that we have in you. As we engage in Sabbath rest, remind us that we are not God. Remind us that Sabbath rest is about trusting and worshiping you and not ourselves cultivate in us gratitude that you're a God that has secured our ability to rest both now and forever. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.